go ahead and get right in uh, to Romans uh, 1 verse 1. So yeah, go ahead and open up there. So, Romans 1, uh, I'm going to read all of 1 through 7, and then we'll, we'll slowly go back through it, but just so you can hear this opening. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now if you'll hold your finger there, or if you're on a phone, you can just listen so you don't have to toggle back and forth. Uh, I'm going to read you the last few verses and point out some overlaps. So you can see kind of how Paul sandwiches this letter and some similar ideas. So this is 25 through 27 of chapter 16. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, in case you didn't pick up on it, because I had to have this pointed out to me, uh, you see some overlapping language in the beginning and end. This marker doesn't seem like it's going to be doing well. You have reference to gospel, to Christ, Gentiles, this one's even worse. The prophets. And then this language of obedience of faith. So gospel, Christ, Gentiles, prophets, obedience of faith. This, this sandwiches uh, this letter to the Romans. And I think what it does is it, it gives us some sort of uh, bearings as we move forward, as we think about uh, what he's going to be talking about. Uh, so let's take a moment uh, then and, and think about what these words mean as we see them then in the first um, seven verses. So uh, first, Paul, a servant. Uh, just a reminder, as, as we position ourselves to hear Romans, as we position ourselves as Christians, um, Paul shows us that there's this attitude of servant. God is not uh, an advisor. Um, he is not uh, just one we go to when we need a few things. He's not like a genie. He is our master. We are his servants uh, if we are going to uh, take the Christian uh, proclamation seriously. So we, we come with this attitude of humility and willing obedience and trust. A servant of Christ Jesus. So that language of Christ, uh, I like how N.T. Wright says this. It's not, uh, this isn't a last name. He's not Mr. Christ. His parents aren't Joseph and Mary Christ. Um, by, by saying Christ, it's this claim that he is the king. He is the one who's going to bring restoration. So, already starting off, servant of the king who's bringing restoration. So the world has changed, and we're three verses in. Uh, and here's the king, King Jesus. Paul's called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel 
of God. Uh, gospel is this, um, this just powerful, loaded term. Uh, he describes it a little bit more in verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So as we think about gospel or good news, uh, Paul already says it's going to be something that's uh, promised beforehand through the prophets. So when we think about what the gospel, what the good news is, we think how do the prophets point to that? Uh, too quickly, I think we hear gospel and automatically think how I go to heaven when I die. How do I get forgiveness? And so we, um, we bring into the idea of the good news, the proclamation, a very individualistic look at this. Now, I'm not saying that there's not an individualistic element to it. Yes, it is good news and has to do with us and forgiveness, but that's not all it is. When you read the prophets, they're not just pointing to how do we go to heaven when we die. When we think about how the prophets are pointing to the gospel, they're pointing to some bigger sense of restoration. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Uh, in Isaiah 52.7, here's one way that we might hear the gospel. How beautiful on the mountains are, those, are the feet of those who bring good news, or those who bring the gospel, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. What's the message of the gospel? Peace, salvation, God is reigning. You hear how big that is? You think about that prophetic vision? The gospel has, is, is here. It's this announcement. Uh, you might hear uh, that language in the, the uh, first century Roman world about Caesar or the emperor's birth. Let's announce the good news of, of, um, of Caesar's accomplishments, uh, what, what the emperor has done. But here, let's announce the good news that God reigns and peace and salvation and restoration have begun. Uh, so you have this, this kind of world shift that's assumed in Paul. And that has more to do than just the shift of um, our Gentile sinner status before God, which is a peace. I don't want to downplay. I just want to say that is not the sum total of the gospel. Okay. Um, questions so far? Sometimes I get moving too fast and need to be slowed down. All right. So, what's the purpose of Romans? Yeah. I think as we read, it becomes clearer. I don't want to say, partly because I'm not entirely sure, and partly because I think there's more than one purpose, um, and partly because I think when you say what the purpose is beforehand, sometimes you read that purpose into everything. This is what happens when you make it all about justification by faith and going to heaven. Everything gets kind of pushed through that, um, and I think Paul's doing more. Um, I think what he's, he, part of what Paul's doing is he's saying, you take some of this stuff, the gospel and Christ and what the prophets have been looking to, and when that becomes your understanding of the world, then the problems and the issues that Romans facing, that's where it moves through. You, you work through that reality of what God has done, uh, and then that helps you deal uh, with things that the Romans are dealing with. And we'll talk more about what some of those things are. Yeah. Others? How many uh, Christians were in Rome? I don't know. George, do you have any ideas? Probably small. Um, well, I'll go ahead and hop to the, the part about Rome. Uh, one of the issues, since this is written to Rome, uh, Paul, Paul didn't plant this church. <coughs> tradition has that maybe Peter did, but, you know, that tradition is uh, not certain. Um, but one of the things that happened in Rome in AD 49 is the Jews are kicked out of Rome. So Jews are expelled from Rome. And then maybe when Nero comes in, sometime between uh, um, when the Jews get expelled and Paul writes Romans, some of the Jews are welcomed back in. So... You can imagine you have this church that is originally Jew and Gentile. Jews get pushed out. Gentiles are in charge in Rome. 
and then the Jews come back. Can you expect the tension that might come from that? Uh, so part of the tension that we're reading, yeah, come on in. Yeah, we got a couple up here. Here, I'll scoot back so it's not so intimidating. Part of the tension that we're going to see in Romans that sometimes gets overlooked because we read this uh, without a view to things like the prophets and how this is Israel's Messiah. Uh, part of the thing that seems to be a tension in Rome is that Jews and Gentiles still aren't quite sure how to work together. Um, this is the Jewish Messiah. What role do Gentiles have uh, in being brought in to the good news about the Jewish Messiah coming and restoring the world? And then aren't the Jews kind of partly responsible for that stuff that happened to their Messiah? And now they experience some punishment and they're getting brought back. Maybe, maybe now we the Gentiles know what's up and they need to take a back seat. Uh, and Paul is going to actually deal with this a lot and some of that, that naughty kind of stuff you get in Romans 9 through 11 about uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and, and what about the people of the promise and all that, uh, who's getting grafted back in. Uh, that's part of the issue going on here um, in, in this Roman church. Uh, we're, I don't know, what would you, when would you say this is written? Uh, 20, 30 years after Jesus' death? So think of the Roman context. 20, 30 years after Jesus' death, uh, the guy who was executed by, by Rome, essentially, um, this is the one that this group in Rome is saying, yeah, he is the king. He is the Christ. The good news isn't about Caesar. The good news is about this guy that Caesar killed. See how just backwards that is? Um, in Acts, uh, the church is accused of turning the world upside down. And this is, this is part of that idea. It's, it's this guy who is executed. He's the one who's bringing salvation and peace. Let's read on and we'll see more of this language. Um, but you can already sense just how, um, just what a shift it is to, um, to accept some of these words that seem just to, to be so commonplace to us. Uh, but they would be so uh, world-altering, I think, to them. All right, verse 3. Regarding his son who as to his earthly life <coughs> was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul seems to be, I mean, the, um, the assumption kind of underlying this is that uh, he is descendant of David, and yet he is somehow uh, Lord. And I think he's meaning Lord more than just master. Um, I think he has a sense of uh, uh, he's divine, too. I think that's just part of Paul's logic here. Um, you get this idea, this promise uh, in the prophets. So Nathan tells David, you know, one of yours is going to have this everlasting kingdom. And so Jesus, Paul says, is that guy. Uh, but there's more going on here, perhaps, as Romans might hear, when he says things like, um, he is the Son of God and Lord. Um, uh, in, uh, in the ancient world, you would see coins with uh, Caesar imprinted on it, and you might get language on there. So this is like ancient propaganda. Son of God, Lord. But who's Son of God and Lord for the, those living in Rome at the church? It's Jesus. And you can see, again, the tension that comes there. It's not like, um, not like Caesar's going to be cool with this idea of, oh, yeah, you want to have another Lord, whatever, you know, the more the merrier. Uh, there's going to be this, this question of allegiance. Um, N.T. Wright says something, uh, as he tends to do, something really helpful um, about this. Um, 
Caesar's message didn't go around the world saying, Caesar is Lord, so if you feel you need to have a Roman Empire kind of experience, you might want to submit to him. Uh, to say Caesar is Lord is to assume a kind of submission and allegiance to him. To say Jesus is Lord is to assume a kind of submission and allegiance to him. Uh, that he is more, he is certainly a savior, uh, but uh, he is also Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to, the Greek here is something like the obedience of faith, to the obedience of faith for his name's sake. Um, what it means to say the obedience of faith, um, in short, I think it's saying that faith uh, assumes obedience. Um, sometimes we get caught up in, in some of the conversation about uh, is it about faith or is it about works, and that's a good conversation to have, but Paul seems to see them as, as inseparable. What does faith mean apart from obedience? Not perfection, but at least an assumed yeah, submission to this way of life. I have faith that he is the king. I have faith that he showed us the way to restoration, and the way I live out that faith is by submitting and obeying and following. Um, obedience, uh, faith apart from obedience just doesn't quite seem like faith uh, in Paul's assumption. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. So Gentiles are mentioned twice. Uh, so get back to Jason's question. I think that's part of it. Uh, what are we doing with the Gentiles as Paul is going to keep coming to this? Um, a reminder, verse 7 there, they are called to be his holy people. Uh, sometimes we wrestle with calling. We want to find our calling in life. Um, uh, but the, the, the scriptural witness seems to be that your primary calling is the kind of person you're becoming. You land a great job, but you're not becoming that set apart for God. You're not living for God, then you're missing your calling. You're in a dead-end job, but you're set apart for God in your life, then you're much nearer to your calling. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, it's there's so many ways you can parse it because it's basically the obedience of faith. So is it saying uh, you're obeying by having faith, or it's an obedience um, that leads to faith, or that faith comes out? I, I think that, um, that as we read the logic of Paul and the logic of Scripture, that to try to parse that too much is, is to, um, to worry about details that maybe we don't need to worry about as much. I don't know. Back, yeah. You know, we're trying to parse it down to the exact second yeah. that someone was saved. Mm -hmm. and when you don't, don't worry about that. If you have faith, it will lead to good works which glorify the Father who gave you salvation. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a testimony. Like Josh says, the last falling in that water, as Ken Switzer said, is when you're all in. Mm -hmm. The dedication. But this idea of servanthood, to me, you know, we've just been through the exercise of democracy in this country, electing someone to be president. It's foreign to us to think about being a servant or a slave. Mm -hmm. And so, when you, because we're taught we're free, we can do anything we want to do mm -hmm. as Americans. But as a Christian, right. you're not free if you really are a Christian. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's far, it's a difficult thing to get your arms around. This idea of servanthood and, and then slavery to, yeah. to someone you really obey as king. Yeah. Um, yeah, so when we hear the good news is, uh, here's how you get forgiveness, here's how you go to heaven when you die, live your life as you want. That's not the gospel that's assumed here. It's the good news is God reigns. 
and you get to be his people. And he is your master, and he's a good, loving master, but you are called, you have a calling to be his people, his holy people, as it says here. Um, Yeah, and Paul will get to that. We might even have a chance to flesh that more out later as he's going to talk about you can be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness, but you're going to be a slave uh, whether you're aware of it or not. So uh, choose wisely. Uh, he ends verse 7, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. A reminder of who our God is. This, kind of, this is how Jesus always, uh, his, his primary way, I should say, of talking to God and teaching us to talk to God is Father. So as we're thinking about this, what kind of service and these other things, we're reminded that he is a good father. I like to think of the prodigal son story as a reminder of the character of this God. And the language of grace and peace, those are loaded terms too. I think when he talks grace, uh, he has in mind something like um, the life and death of Jesus. These are kind of operating ideas. Uh, how are we going to live out this good news and the obedience of faith? Through grace. Uh, and peace, uh, I think, is capturing this idea of Jewish shalom, this larger sense of restoration that's has begun and that we are a part of. This is the world that we are living into. There's a couple up here. Yeah, come on in. Oh, no. Um, George, since we're at the, the end of a section, anything you would add to verses 1 through 7? Uh, if you have the NIV, it, it translates the obedience of faith line as faith and obedience. Anybody have that? Faith and obedience? Oh, that's a lame translation. <laughs> yes. I don't like that. And, and what I read into that is, is kind of the question that Steve asked about the relationship of faith and works. And um, they want to make sure that it's not just about obedience, but you've got to have faith. And faith takes priority the way we typically read Romans. And as we talk about the Romans road, it, one of the things they say is that works can't save you. And that's one of the problems they, they read that Paul is addressing, is people trying to save themselves by their works. And um, works, good works, is like a bad thing in some churches. Ooh, works, yeah, that's, <laughs> we don't want that. That's, you, you're trying to save yourself. But this obedience of faith is, I think, a much stronger, it's a different way of reading Romans that mm -hmm. we'll come back to several times, but I just wanted to kind of emphasize that. Yeah, yeah, so. so mine is the obedience that comes from faith. Yeah, yeah so it's. Is that what the original way I like that better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's another way to parse the genitive, yeah. That's, that's interesting that the new NIV, this is the 1975 NIV. Yeah. Which version he's using, he says, brings about believing obedience. Believing obedience, that's a helpful uh, a helpful way of putting it, I think. Uh, and you can see. Yeah. 
born out of appreciation. Yeah, wait on that, because we're going to talk about whether that's where Romans is going. Uh, that's kind of the Harvey Floyd move. Uh, and I'm wondering if there's maybe more uh, than just response. That's a Harvey Floyd. Tim Keller is very much about that. And I love Tim Keller, uh, but I'm, I'm going to push him a little further. Not bad. <laughs> Not bad. I'm just saying that that's, this is coming back to Jason's question. If you, if you have an idea of where Romans is going, you're going to read Romans through that way. But if you slow down, sometimes you'll see that maybe it's going bigger than that. We're, we're trying to, to uh, put this in, I don't know, banks that are too narrow, uh, and it's going to be broader uh, than that. So, not saying it's wrong completely, but I'm saying it's... <laughs> but I'm saying let's not too quickly, let's not too quickly narrow. And this is when Jason asks... Okay, that's, that's fair, yes. Um, to Jason's point, when part of this issue comes from, because we already have an idea of what Romans, well, the questions that Roman needs to be answering. The question Romans needs to be answering, we think, are how do we go to heaven, or how do we get saved, or how do we get justified? And so we keep re reading Romans through that. And I'm saying Paul isn't just concerned with those questions. And when all we're doing is reading Romans with those questions, it's like we're sifting out so much of the good stuff in Romans. Uh, but if instead we'll, we'll sit with him and we'll go where he leads us, yeah, we're going to get to those questions, but we're going to get to a whole lot more. Uh, than that as well. Uh, and I think it's going to be challenging and life-giving and, um, and uh, inspiring. Um, not because I'm teaching it, but because Paul's a great teacher. Um, uh, and so 16 and 17, I'm going to skip uh, for time. Um, 8 through 15, it's kind of Thanksgiving prayer section. 16 and 17, this is uh, what has been regarded as uh, the thesis of Romans. Um, maybe. Uh, for I am not ashamed of this good news, why is he not ashamed of the gospel? He might be ashamed in a Roman culture of, of um, proclaiming a crucified Christ or calling for a crucified way of life. In an honor-shame society, you want to elevate yourself and kind of push down others. The way of the cross is turning the world upside down. But Paul's not ashamed of this way of life or of this Messiah or of this good news. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So. You know, as we hold on to ideas, what does salvation mean? Uh, what does salvation mean? Um, instead of answering, just think, let's see what maybe Paul teaches us about what salvation means. Um, is it forgiveness in heaven or uh, even more? For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. My translation says, from first to last. Yours might say, from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I wish sometimes that Paul would have expanded some things more. Um, in the Greek, this is like, he just crams words together, and he doesn't always explain how they relate, and so translations have to do uh, sometimes their best. So for instance, verse 17, in the gospel, uh, the righteousness of God, or God's righteousness is revealed. Here's one of the, uh, the places that people wrestle with. Is this saying uh, the righteous status that God imparts to the believers? That's how Protestants tend to read that. Or is this saying, as we might get like in Isaiah 51, God's righteousness, uh, his reign, his setting the world to right is what is revealed. The former doesn't include the latter. The latter would include the former. Do you follow that? When you're thinking about uh, if this is just about how God gives righteousness to those who believe, uh, then that's, a, I think, an over or unnecessarily narrow way of reading it. 
But if instead you see it like the prophets as he points to the gospel, like we get in Isaiah 51, this is God's righteousness, his salvation, his setting things right, then it has to do with us as individuals, but it has to do with the world as well. We're going to get to Romans 8, creation groaning. Stuff is messed up. Things are not as they should be, more than just on an individual level. And so maybe um, that in verse 17, he is pointing to a bigger, um, a bigger uh, picture that doesn't exclude our questions, but isn't limited to that as well. A righteousness that is, and here's another tough one, uh, literally a righteousness that is from faith to faith. Uh, ek pisteos ace piston. Four words, I wish he would have done more with that. Um, so this could mean something like, as uh, this NIV translation has it, its emphasis, it's all about faith, faith from first to last. But as others, and I, this is where I tend to be on it, um, it sees it as kind of a move. It's from God's faithfulness to our faithfulness. God has been faithful to covenant, as he promised to our, the ancestors and to the, pro the prophets. He has shown himself to be faithful to the covenant through Jesus, and our response from his faithfulness is to our faithfulness. So we're reminded as we're kind of repositioned here that it, it's, it's not primarily a me story, it's a God story. And our response is to follow his lead. Uh, and so he sets the world right, he sends Jesus, and what we do is we submit and we follow and we're willing to be his people. And, um, and in that, somehow, as maybe we'll parse later, uh, God's righteousness is revealed um, and it is salvation for us. Big S, salvation, uh, I would say. And he ends it, the righteous will live by faith. Uh, in Habakkuk, the idea seems to not be uh, the righteous will find eternal life by faith, but they're going to live their lives according to faith in God's promises. God says this is what's going to happen, and Habakkuk is uh, called to live faithfully accordingly. George, you want to add anything on 16 and 17? <laughs> okay, um, <coughs> verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So uh, 18 through 32, this is going to maybe get a little uncomfortable, um, but Scripture isn't always about making us feel uncomfortable. Uh, the wrath of God, we should be reminded that this isn't uh, kind of an arbitrary wrath where God just loses his temper and uh, flies off the handle. Uh, this isn't like uh, I did a couple months ago when my kids were really annoying me at the table and uh, this literally happened. I, I was telling them to wait to eat and Josiah picked up his hot dog and so I grabbed it out of his hand and launched it across the room. <laughs> that is, that's the kind of petty wrath, you know, uh, that, that uh, I displayed. That's not the wrath of God, right? He's not this kind of petty flying off the handle. Yeah, that happens. Our kids would be in such trouble if it wasn't for, for Lauren in there. Um, but, uh, you know, they have a lot of chance to see humility and apologizing. And uh, so that's what I teach them. I teach them um, how to uh, yeah, swallow your pride um, on a regular basis um, and ask for forgiveness. But, but God's wrath is this good wrath. It's, it's the kind of wrath, um, it might be scary, but, but at the end of the day, I think it's a wrath uh, that we're glad that he has. Uh, it's, his, it's his anger about injustice. Uh, as N.T. Wright, uh, to paraphrase him, uh, if God didn't get angry about some things, he wouldn't be a good God. Right? There are some things that are wrong and broken, and we want God to set it right. And if we were content uh, with um, people getting away with things that they shouldn't get away with, uh, then, um, 
the problem uh, maybe lies with us, not with God's wrath. So this is a good, it's a righteous wrath. Um, but it's a little, little uh, uncomfortable too. Uh, as we get to the end of this, uh, of this chapter, uh, we're reminded that, that some of that sin list uh, captures some of our own sins as well. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Uh, this is, this I find some of the hardest stuff to know exactly how to, um, how to understand what Paul is saying here. Is he exaggerating? Is he being literal here? Um, on the one hand, he seems to say, there are some things about God that should just simply be known. And I think he's right. He points to things like his eternal power and divine nature and uh, them being without excuse. So uh, a few things that we might think just natural revelation we might be aware of is something like there's a creator, um, which isn't to say you have to believe in a literal seven-day creation, but, but even from a scientific perspective, I think it's hard to believe uh, something came from nothing, which is not to say you don't believe in the Big Bang, uh, but it's to say that even that, you had something. Uh, and in our world, something doesn't come from nothing. Uh, something always comes from something. That's just the way uh, kind of science works. So it's this, this kind of mystery. And, and from then, they should have recognized there's something bigger. There's something more. Uh, and that this something or someone is powerful. And when he talks about them being without excuse, I wonder if he's not pointing to something like a general sense of morality. Not, not the more explicit morality you might get in the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments, but some uh, basic fundamental idea of right and wrong. Um, and we're, we're kind of prone to want to push back against this. No, no, if you look and compare cultures, you'll realize there's no. Uh, but there's, there's, um, there's even like people like uh, Alex Rosenberg, atheist at uh, Duke, um, a chair of the philosophy department, who says, yeah, there's a moral law that runs uh, across cultures and across societies. Um, Rosenberg would say that's just our evolutionary instinct, uh, but someone like Paul and other Christians might say that's maybe part of it, but that's not all of it, uh, that maybe that's part of what it means to be human is to recognize a basic kind of right and wrong. Uh, the only thing I would add to hold this intention is when he says people are without excuse, uh, he also says <coughs> in Acts 17.30 when he's talking to the Athenians, God overlooks such times of ignorance. So there is, on the one hand, no excuse, and then you have another witness in the New Testament of Paul saying uh, that God has mercy uh, in your ignorance. So there is, you should know better, and there's some ignorance. There is uh, maybe consequences um, and maybe an overlooking. So I, I, I don't know how to wrap all this up. Um, George, do you have any thoughts on how natural revelation fits into? Or am I misreading this? No, that, that's really good. I, I had something to say, but I can't remember. But, uh, my, this is, my mind goes to a song we used to sing about seeing Jesus in the sunset. Have you ever stood at the sunset? You guys remember that song? But it's not, I, I think you're right to say, it's, you can't know the whole story from mm -hmm. creation, but you can right. understand enough to know right from wrong. Yeah. Um, and so that, I think he's going to say that, I think he's talking about both Jews and Gentiles now. So even Gentiles who don't mm -hmm. have special revelation have some ability to, to be guilty of idolatry by rejecting the knowledge of God that they, mm -hmm. they had access to. Yeah. 
And this maybe plays out on a global scale, like everyone seems to believe in some sense of God, besides modern, you know, uh, cultures. There's always been that kind of sense, it seems to be. I remember Harvey Floyd saying one time, so I want to mention this. this Please, yes. I'm not down on Harvey Floyd. (laughs) Go ahead, George. He said one time that even cannibals don't eat people from their own tribe. There you go, yes. So everybody has some right and wrong sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. (laughs) <laughs> That's good, yes. yes. I, I do. I appreciate Harvey Floyd. I just, I want us to, uh, and Luther. I just don't, I'm not sure Luther uh, gets it all the way right here. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Luther. So um, please hear my uh, critique with a lot of gratitude. And, um, uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, we're going to speed through 21 uh, through 25, because I'm sure you guys are wanting to uh, get to the stuff about um, homosexuality, and we're not going to have a lot of time to cover that, but uh, even a couple of minutes might be helpful. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. That language of birds and animals and reptiles seems to echo the creation accounts, like in Genesis 1, so, so they're worshiping those created things and not the Creator. Um, and all the while they think they're wise and that they're foolish. Um, you get, I love this in 1 Corinthians where he talks about what's foolishness to one group is wise to God. Um, if, if some of this stuff is true about who is truly Christ and about the cross and grace and how we're to live as that, then, then there's one way of life that's going to seem wise from a Christian perspective, the way of mercy and sacrifice and forgiveness. But from another perspective, let's say the honor-shame society, that's going to look foolish. Um, wisdom and foolishness can, can be, I'm not saying they're ultimately relative, but they can seem relative depending on which story you find yourself in, uh, depending on which view of reality, which view of God, which view of right and wrong and ultimate truth. Um, and so here, people who think they're wise are foolish. 24, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served <coughs> created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. So um, you're going to see this almost downward spiral as uh, part of God's wrath seems to be revealed in giving people what they want. Uh, So you have this move. Uh, They exchanged, God gave them over. It happens three times. They exchanged, God gave them over. They exchanged, God gave them over. Sometimes the punishment is getting what we want. You sure you want that? All right, here's what happens. Uh, You want to deny ultimate reality that God created uh, you and has a calling on your life? Okay, but when you deny ultimate reality, then, then your understanding of, of the rest of reality is going to be skewed as well. What you're going to think is wise is actually going to be foolishness. Um, so we have to be careful of getting what we want uh, when it's not aligned with our Creator. Um, verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, <coughs> the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their er- error. Furthermore, well, I'll stop there. 26 and 27. Um, these are, to me, two of the verses that are particularly hard to, um, to get past if you want to argue that um, that homosexual relationships, same-sex relationships are okay uh, in the church, uh, which I want to clarify is not saying that if you have same-sex attraction, you're somehow uh, not welcome in the church or anything like that. I mean, we, there's kind of this whole spectrum that probably all of us experience of having sexual desires that are outside what God's intentions are. 
we wouldn't have much of a church if only those with perfect sexual desires uh, were welcomed in here. Um, but here it seems to be the same sex practice, and I'll, I'll expand on this some more, but I see a hand coming up there. Yes? Then you're what? Oh, okay. Yeah, I think, um, George, what's the guy's name who's done a lot of work in this area? We had come talk to us. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's done some work in this. Um, man, I don't want to open this up too much with uh, like three minutes uh, left. I, if I were to make a few comments regarding that, I think that there's abs the church should not be afraid of getting into the kind of medical side of things. We're not afraid of, of understanding the world better uh, as Christians, so that shouldn't be a fear. Uh, I, my, my, the other side of that would to say would be to say um, that that um, we still have a sense of of nature that goes beyond um, our personal experience. Uh, the kind of nature that's assumed here of, of creational nature of of a male and female. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Rightness. That's that's the way God intended. Um, so when things are different from that, I would say, s I have no trouble saying something like, yeah, that might be natural uh, in the sense of uh, some people ha are born um, with same-sex attraction or tending towards same-sex attraction or uh, with some sort of gender confusion or different than their anatomy. Um, but to say that to me is not the same as saying, and therefore one should have free reign to pursue that um, as a Christian however they say fit. Uh, just as um, I have natural desires and tendencies that I don't think are okay, even if I could explain medically why I have those, uh, from evolutionary biology, why I might want to spread my seed around, uh, right? Why I still, as a Christian, uh, need to put restraints on what that looks like. So it's not as though 
Um, I think, yes, we follow that conversation, but it's not the trump card, or it's not the final say in the matter, uh, if that's fair. The, the, the Christian, the church should have a more robust conversation uh, with this. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the reason why we can't hardly have a conversation today about it uh, while why to say anything against it is to somehow be unjust or to be persecuting is because of what a terrible job Christians did on this front by not listening and by not being gracious. And so now the tables have turned and now we're not experiencing the grace that we should have shown on the front end. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we have uh, dug this hole, so to speak. And, uh, but it doesn't mean that we, we don't pursue truth, <laughs> that we don't s- try to speak faithfully. I mean... To me, you have this line in here uh, towards the end, verse 32. Uh, they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these, these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Uh, this language of approve um, strikes me as if, if we are convicted of something as a church, we, we can't avoid speaking the truth about it, the truth in grace, the truth in love. Uh, but to be quiet or... Um, um, Again, this is a this is a complex issue, uh, but we still have um, we still have to voice what we think to be true, especially in our communities. We don't need to regulate what the world does. Uh, the church has a particular view on things like sex outside of marriage, but we don't need to regulate that. You know, in the country, the church has a particular view about divorce. We don't necessarily need to regulate that for non-Christians. Uh, the church has a particular view here about same-sex practice uh, that we don't need to regulate outside of the community. Um, and again, please let this be clear. I'm not saying uh, that the church needs to go on some sort of witch hunt here or that those who uh, have same-sex attraction aren't welcomed. Uh, but there are some practices that seem to be um, prohibited. Uh, with maybe one minute left, and then I'll go to George. Yeah. yeah. I just want to say really fast that um, I think it's probably the case that Paul has in mind heterosexual people who are uh, free... I mean, that's the Roman world, was you had a marriage with, usually with somebody of the opposite sex, and, but then you were free to kind of, so he's, he doesn't have in mind all the modern uh, discussions that we, that we have in mind. So he's... Yeah, it's a little different, that, yeah. Not that he would agree with, mm-hmm. that that would change, but what he specifically has in mind are heterosexuals. Yeah. Of course, in the next couple of verses, he's talking about people who gossip. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we're we're so not. We need to be careful. We need not to be careful to, what we. Yeah, arrogant, self-important, boastful. Yeah, and and he, I mean, there is still some stuff like um, Wright points to Plato, who has this extended discourse on love between males. Uh, so it's it's different, but not maybe so different where there is not some overlap, where he's still not speaking uh, to an issue that can speak to us today. Um, most New Testament scholars I know say Paul says no to homosexuality. And then those New Testament scholars who say it's okay in the church then say, and here's why we read against the grain of the Bible on this. That's, that's when you say that's pretty accurate. And to me, I think there's a problem when you say, it seems pretty clear to know, and here's why we read against the grain of that. To me, it's, it seems pretty clear to know, then you, you need to have good reason to read against the grain of that. Particularly if uh, your culture seems to be one of the first ones to do that, and you know you're living in a culture that's sexually screwed up. Um, maybe you should be looking to those cultures that are less sexually screwed up for the lead on where we go with sexual ethics. Um, but it's difficult, not easy. And uh, I'm over time, and I apologize. 
uh, for that. Um, so um, chapter two next week. Um, thank you all. Yeah, this was uh, tough, but uh, hopefully worthwhile conversation. Huh? Yeah, that stuff's tough. Uh, yeah. Did you What's ever, up? Did we ever decide whether it was 80 or 90? Oh. <laughs> yes. How you doing? You might want to refrain from using that phrase, the Trump card. Trump card. That is, yeah. Well, he's playing that right now, too, isn't he, man? Yeah, he gave all new meaning to that. I didn't think about I love that. It. Uh, I love yes. It. You know, there's going to be a next generation who thinks that's where the idea of Trump you card came it. from. Yeah. Uh, yes. Exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> like your kids. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well done. Hey, thank a lot, you. A lot to get through. Yeah, yeah. In a short amount of time. Yeah. It's... So I was just going to throw another name out. I'm a uh, uh, Jimmy Allen. Oh, okay. All right. So. Yes, yes. All right. But I think uh, a good description of the moral law is mere Christianity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chapter or book one of mere Christianity. Yeah. It's the first thing he goes towards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just read that in my uh, in my um, store of the church class. Right. Yeah, it's a good. Uh, it's a helpful intro to that idea. Yeah. And, and as important as the issue we just discussed is, I really appreciate Hilton's comment, which was uh, we can get drawn into a really grander discussion, mm -hmm. which I don't think was Paul's intent. I mean, Romans chapter one isn't about that. Mm -hmm. Right. It's about how we all have worship the creation, yeah. versus the creator, and all these things. That yeah, yeah. None of us are exempt from that list of uh, yeah, fully. Yeah, good. And, uh, and, I, and I also put you know right <coughs> definition of righteousness mm -hmm. uh, of God mm -hmm. that I appreciate you bringing up. Oh, good. Yeah. And I think we get that. isolated on individual perfectness. Yeah. And that's not the definition of. Right. Yeah, it's, it's too narrow. It's a whole broadening mm -hmm. of Romans to think about God setting things right yeah. versus me getting right. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Romans starts to make a little more sense when you open that door uh, a little wider. Yeah. Yeah, good. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Okay. After that, I mean, Josh, thank you so much. Yeah. Just, Let me know. Okay, I will. Yarbrough, when he came and talked to, yeah. talked to the board of trustees, and talked yeah, to he was good. And I think what he was pushing was exactly what you said. Caleb Clanton and I spent a lot of time talking about this after Yarbrough left. That's so funny. I ordered one of these podiums the other day. And it same, exactly same, not. Same spot right there. Uh, but what Dr. Lowry, and well, Dr. Lowry didn't say this, what Caleb was talking about was the only place we can go in trying to decide how Lipscomb deals with this is on the actions, mm -hmm. on the behavioral dimensions yeah. that are translated into their everyday lives. So I think yeah. you're on the right track oh, thanks. with that. I really do. Hey, I love you being back in class. Oh, Let me explain to you my Harvey thing. Oh, oh no, Harvey is great. He taught us the gospel. When oh we yeah, came, when we yeah. Came to live he school, helped teach people we were grace. Saved by, we were saved by works. Yeah. And when he said, "Oh no, no, no," you know, it just changed my way of thinking. But I'm kidding yeah, you about yeah. Oh so no, I know. He's, that was forty years. He was ago. really helpful. I think in helping the Church of Christ understand some sense and he of was grace. So, yeah. He was so persecuted during our years. Yeah. You know, they were just because churches were just so. But I'm so thankful for yeah, you and thank for George. You. That you're back. Yeah, it's I fun to be back. So hard, but, and your kids are so big. I know. I, I look know. at Josiah and I'm like, he is like a he person. He turns three in a couple of weeks. Well, and I know. 
and Sophie is just tall and beautiful. I know. And she really she's changed so, while y'all were gone. So. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, she's so and it gives bright. the rest of us hope that you are throwing hot dogs across. <laughs> Good. That you're somewhat. Oh yes. Thank you. Today was a shame. Oh, appreciate it. Thanks.